Once again, I'd just like to welcome you to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church on this uh, beautiful uh, mid-January Lord's Day. If I haven't had a chance to get to know you yet, I pray at the end of our service today you'll stop by and see me at the door. I'd love to put a name and a face together and get to know you better. It's a joy to be with you this morning back in the great book of Exodus. Some of you thought I forgot about Exodus. I didn't forget about Exodus. We took a break in mid-November, just before our 11th anniversary service together, which some of you will remember over at Battleground Academy, where we celebrated God's kindness to us as a congregation in these last 11 years. And then we immediately were ushered into the Advent season, where we spend time thinking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ and also preparing ourselves for his return. And then the last couple of weeks, if you have joined us, we have been looking at a very small section in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 12, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, that very well-known section where Paul says he forgets what lies behind, he looks forward to what lies ahead, he presses on towards the upward call of the prize of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We've been looking at that text as kind of a way to enter into the new year together. And so now that we're into the new year, now that we're midway through January, it's time to revisit Moses. Let's go see Moses on the mountain. Now, because it's been a little bit of time since we've been there, I thought I would take a moment just to remind you uh, where we are. Uh, Moses has been on Mount Sinai... Uh, meeting with God for nearly 40 days and 40 nights at this point. I don't know if it's day 39 or night 39 or day 40 or or night 40, but it's somewhere in there. He's right at the very end of his tenure. He's been receiving from the Lord the blueprints of the tabernacle, getting his sins for the dwelling place that the Lord will share with his people Israel as they make their way in the desert. Before that, while Moses was on the mountain, God gave to him what we call the Book of the Covenant. It's the section in the book of Exodus where all of those little pesky social laws are given. You know, don't eat this and, and uh, do this in this circumstance. And we kind of get lost. You know, many Bible reading plans have died in the Book of the Covenant uh, over the years. Um, it's one of the sections that sometimes can be very hard for us to understand, but it's all of the guiding case laws that the people of Israel used to kind of help them make decisions and adjudicate matters that would arise within their community. And just before the book of the covenant, going back to Exodus chapter 20, where Moses really does descend, ascend the mountain for the first time, he receives what is the most important word from the Lord there, and that is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, the book of the covenant, the blueprint for the tabernacle. Moses has received all of that on Mount Sinai in these last 40 days. And now in Exodus 31, he's about to make his descent. In fact, as we begin in in Exodus 32 next week, we'll see that he does make his descent with with those tablets of stone written by the finger of God. He will descend from the mountain to the people of Israel. And But before he does... Exodus 31 comes to us. That's where we are this morning. And what we see the Lord does in Exodus 31 is that not only does he give the blueprint for the tabernacle, but he also pinpoints those whom he wants to build it. 
he commissions and qualifies, equips two particular men here in Exodus 31 to lead the building of the tabernacle. That the Lord's going to use the community of faith to actually build for the Lord a dwelling place that he will dwell among his people. And then by the end of this section, he reminds them of something that he's reminded them of over and over already in the book of Exodus. And that is, they ought not get just caught up in their work, that they need to remember my Sabbaths. There is a rest for the people of God. As we come into the presence of the Lord today on Sunday, it is the Lord's Day. It is the Christian Sabbath, a day of rest, a day where we get renewed. A day where we remember the things that are true about salvation. Get freshly commissioned by God in the various callings that are here in this room. And ask for the filling of the Spirit that we might be fruitful and multiply and effective in the work that He's given us to do. That's why we're here. And in a very real sense, He wants to remind us of that truth and indeed the people of Israel as we look together in Exodus 31. So let's turn our attention there. Exodus 31, beginning in... Verse 1, this is God's word. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft, And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all of its utensils, and the altar of incense. And the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout the generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. 
Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would take this, your word through the prophet Moses here in Exodus 31, and you would speak to us. Far removed in one very real sense from this text, historically and its reference points seem to be a distant past to us from where we are this morning. And yet the message of Exodus 31 is as fresh as the dew was on the grass early today. Lord, we would pray that we would hear the freshness of this message right now by the power of the Spirit who even filled these two servants to be builders of the tabernacle of God. Would you come and fill us by the Spirit? Would you freshly commission us to your work and credential us that we might be prepared to take up the mantle of your call to walk worthy of the gospel in the world, bearing witness to Christ. Come and meet with us here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's true, isn't it, that over the course of our lives, we have many ups and downs in our work. I remember one of the very first jobs that I, I ever had, it was, it was a yard care business. I was 15, 16 years of age, had launched this new entrepreneurial vision with a friend of mine entitled, because I know you're interested in this, entitled S&S Lawn Care, Sheridan and Sarton S&S Lawn Care. We were going to be the best lawn care there was. All over South Mississippi, we were going to take it by surprise. The brilliance, the beauty, the magnificence of lawn care. We cut grass, we removed leaves, we trimmed hedges, we cleaned out gutters. We did full service, I tell you. Wonderful memories of working with my friend, working outside um, with my hands. I don't get to do as much of that anymore, not as many calluses here as there once, once was. I remember one particular low point, however. I remember landing this job on the edge of town, a rather large um, house, rather large um, a plot of land, several acres. It was a, it was a nice price point. Uh, we were looking forward to having this on our regular rotation of, of yards so that this income would be floating into our, our bank account, you understand. We get there the very first time to cut the, the grass, and, and we cut it. We knock on the, the door of the owner so he could come out and look at the amazing job that we did. And uh, he said to us, you know, men, I, have, I don't have any money today uh, with me. Can, are you guys going to be in the area t- tomorrow? Could you just, you just stop by? Yes, we would be happy to do that. Um, we'll be back by uh, tomorrow. And we packed up our stuff, we headed out, and we came back the next day only to find that the house was deserted. They had, they had moved. Um, after we had cut the grass that morning, they had moved the afternoon. There was, there was no human being in sight. There was no furniture. I, I promise you, I peeked in the blinds. There was no furniture in the house, and, and we had been, well, schemed. We'd been taken. It was, a, it was a school of hard knocks, you might say, that day. I came home, and, well, I complained. I complained to my mom and, and my dad. I remember at one point in the conversation, I just can still see my mom's face. I said to her, Mom, it's just a waste. 
You know, here we have spent our, our gas, we would used our, our equipment, we would driven out there now twice, and with absolutely nothing to show for it. It's, it's a waste. And my mom, who has a penchant for the prophetic, looked at me and she says, it's not a waste if you did it for the Lord. I still remember it. It took a while to learn that lesson, you understand. The sting of not receiving the remuneration for cutting the grass was still there. But the lesson, well, I'm preaching it to you today. It wasn't a waste if you did it for the Lord. You know, in the text that's before us, there is a work and a calling that's been given to these two men. A work and a calling that is unto the Lord. And part of what I want you to see in the first place in Exodus chapter 31 is that God has called us to work for Him. And He has called us to work for Him in the way that He has worked for us. You remember that the Bible actually opens with God the worker. That's how we are first, in a very real sense, introduced to God in Genesis chapter 1, in the creating of uh, the new heavens, and the, or the heavens and the, the earth. He's creating the new heavens and the new earth right now. But he was creating the heavens and the earth at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. He was a worker. That's who God is introduced to be to us at the very opening pages of Scripture. But he's a worker who also, shall we say, gets his hands dirty in the soil of the creation that he creates. And he does that actually immediately in the text of Scripture in Genesis chapter 2. You'll remember that the first thing we see God do for Adam and Eve is that he plants for them a garden. He, he gets, as it were, if I may put it this way, on his hands and his knees, and he puts into place this beautiful garden so that they will be cared for, so that they will be provided. What we see in God's work, amazing display of order as we look at creation, amazing display of, of beauty. It's pleasing in, in every sense. It's, it's, it's an amazing display of excellence. The highest quality of, of everything God brings forth. And it is fruitful by design. It, it is meant to be a blessing to those in whom He has created it for. And then we read in Genesis 1 and 2 that we are actually made in His likeness. We are made in His image. We, the creatures of the late sixth day, human beings, male and, and female, we are made in the image and the likeness of God. And, well, scholars and theologians have wondered for, for years, have, have written, they've spilt a lot of ink on this. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And there's a lot of different things that we can reference. But one of the things that's very clear in the Scripture, and maybe most immediately clear in the context of Genesis 1 and 2, is that we're going to be workers. We're going to be workers like unto the way God Himself worked. Do you remember the language of Genesis 1.28? After we were described as those who were made in the image of God, listen to these words. We are to be fruitful and multiply. We are to fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. We are in a very real sense to do what it is God has done. He fashioned and ordered and made beautiful the world, didn't he? He filled it full of birds in the sky and animals on the land and fish in the sea. 
He had been forming and filling the created order. And now he says, I want to release you as my vice regents, my, my authorities on the earth, in such a way that you will, you will increase the fruitfulness of what I've made fruitful. You will multiply that which I have multiplied. That it will just, it'll grow exponentially as you image, in my likeness, the way in which I have worked. And we see that right at the very beginning when Adam, don't we, enters into the garden. It's the first thing that God actually calls Adam to do is he plants the garden and then he calls Adam by name into the garden. And what does he call him to do? To to take care of it, to keep it. He He wants to be sure that it's cared for and it remains fruitful. You know, as we enter Exodus 31, a similar pattern is really in view. And I want you to see that with Bezalel and Aholab. Look here in verses 1 and verses 6. They're called, aren't they, to take the materials of earth. They're called to take gold and silver and bronze and cutting stone and wood. All the materials for the tabernacle. And they are to construct a place for the living God to dwell. They're going to be what J.R.R. Tolkien refers to as, as sub-creators. They're going, to, they're going to create with what God has made. They're not going to create like God in that they will speak and it will be so. They don't, they don't create ex nihilo, out of nothing, but they do create with the something that God himself has made. And they, they make things that God himself well, didn't make with the things that God has made. Through their very efforts, think of this amazing construction project. Through their very efforts, they are going to create the dwelling place of the living God on the earth. God had once dwelled, hadn't he, with Adam and Eve in the garden. He walked with them in the cool of the day. What G.K. Bill refers to as a kind of temple garden. A sanctuary garden, a place where God and His loving kindness and His presence was fully known, ministering to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve serving Him. A beautiful picture of a worshipful garden sanctuary. And that was lost, wasn't it? It was, it was lost in the fall. And since the fall, uh, Adam and Eve and all of mankind have lived east of Eden. They've been cut off from the garden. We looked at the tabernacle a few months back and we said to, it, to ourselves that it was, it's a bit like another world. All of the descriptions, all of the colors, all of the fact that you can't go into it unless certain times of the days. And if you're certain people like the Levites... It's as if to feel like it's another world, like heaven itself is coming down to to earth. Here, these two men have been charged and, and commissioned by God to create, as it were, heaven on earth. To create another sanctuary, a place where the Lord would dwell with His people. It's the beginning of the restoration, you see. Something of what God has in store for His people. Now, what I want you to see is that they are called to work in the way that God worked for His glory in, well, in much the same way that, well, we are called to work every day for the Lord. No, we're not commissioned uh, by God um, as Moses was here on Mount Sinai to build a dwelling place uh, for the Lord. But we, we are called to work. And in all of our work, our work is meant for God, as it were, to inhabit. 
for him to be inside of, to be working through, making himself known. Listen to Paul's words in Colossians chapter 3. This is his charge to us. He says, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord. Not for human masters, you understand. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever your hand finds to do, work it with all of your heart. Why? Well, you're working as for the Lord. And notice you're not even working for, well, earthly remuneration. He says you're working so that you'll receive inheritance from the Lord. For you are serving the Lord Christ. Now, I'll tell you, just for a moment, take inventory. That's one of our words from today. Take inventory of your work life this last week. What, what was the, the philosophy of work that you operated by? And you are saying to yourself, Nate, I didn't operate by a philosophy at all. I just, I just tried to get done what needed to get done so I could get home. Well, that's a philosophy. That's a, that's a philosophy. Maybe you, maybe you worked uh, to make ends meet. The world tells us very often we have to work to make ends meet. In fact, there's nothing wrong with, with, with remuneration. There's nothing wrong with, with gaining, gaining money through gainful in, employment. That's obviously part of what work is, is about. But is, does the sum total of the philosophy of your, your work operate in that fashion? Maybe you're one who's like, oh no, oh no, I, I, much, I love my work, I'm deeply involved. I work because I feel so satisfied in working. Oh, so it's really about you. And how your work makes you feel, and how accomplished you feel, and how, and how, how great you feel when you get things done. That's your, that's your philosophy of work, I, I, I hear it. I hear it, it's coming through in that statement. Now, do I want you to enjoy your work? I do. I would love for you to be satisfied in your work. In fact, the more alignment with the things that the Lord has called you to do, the gifts that He's given you, happening in the workplace, will likely increase the joy of the person who's in it. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But that's, that's not what we're given here in the Scriptures. We are to work as unto the Lord. Have you thought of your work as a calling from the Lord? Now you say, well, no, Pastor, you, you have a calling from the Lord. Right? You, you, have a, you have a calling from the Lord. I, I, don't, I don't have a calling from the Lord. I'm just, I'm just making widgets. Like that's what I'm doing. You know, one of the most remarkable things about this text is that not only is Bezalel and Ohilam actually called by the Lord. What, what are they? They're equipped by the Lord. How do, I, how do I know that in this text? Well, did you notice that? That he called them by name and then what did he do? Filled them with the Holy Spirit. He filled them with the Holy Spirit. Now, now some of you in this, in this room, when you think of being filled by the Holy Spirit, you appropriately, theologically think, well, that, that happened for me at the moment I trusted in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the moment I... Moment I Surrendered myself to the Lord and trusted in Christ alone for my salvation. I know that based upon the teaching of the Word, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 10, many other places, 
that the Spirit was given to me and is now residing within me. Some of you are saying that. And so what happened here with these two men is clearly they were, they were saved. Well, no, that's not the point of this particular text. That is true, but there's other ways in which the Scripture uses the language of the filling of the Spirit. And very often in the Old Testament do we see this particular use that, that men and, yes, women are filled with the Holy Spirit to accomplish a particular task or calling that the Lord has given them to do. Uh, these men, notice, they have been filled with the Spirit. How? Verse, verse 3 and verse 4. With ability and intelligence. With knowledge and all craftsmanship. Now, it's a remarkable list here as it goes down into strategy and tactics, into, into knowing how to use the right materials with their, their hands. There's all kinds of things embedded in that language, certain knowledge and skill that works from mind to hand, to be able to imagine, to design, and to, and to plan. And then, think about it, not just to do the project, but to have to manage the people who are going to work on the project with you, right? We're told in verse 6 that all able men have been gifted to help on this particular task. This is going to be a, a community-wide event. And it's a massive event. It's a massive scaled event. They're going to have to work with teams. And ladies, be encouraged. You're not left out in the least here. In Exodus 35, uh, we're actually bringing in when the construction of the tabernacle actually begins. We're told that women are involved in the, the work as well. S- sewing the, the curtains and, and uh, certainly doing the, the necessary interior design and decorating for the tabernacle. And we're told that all of this gifting came how? By the filling of the Spirit of the Lord. Now, I tend to agree that these two men are likely not receiving these gifts for the very first time. Most commentators would say that that's the case, and that's, that's likely the case. They, these are probably names which were known in the community as having gifts in art and craftsmanship and, and, and carpentry and, and foreman skills. Um, so when this name was, when these names were mentioned to the people of Israel, they probably didn't go, "Oh, what do you mean? Those guys? Surely not those guys, right?" You know, they couldn't put together a particle board desk from Target. I mean, they don't know what they're doing, right? They would have no sense of how to. That's not the response. It's probably that the God-given talents that had been given to them, which have been matured and developed over time, because all of it takes time to develop. God is now marrying His Spirit with in a special commissioned project known as building the tabernacle in order to bring about tremendous fruitfulness and blessing for the people of Israel. Uh, What we see here is that that God in His grace by His Spirit is portioning gifts and the provision of empowerment for His people for the task in which He calls them. Yes, this is a special task, but I, just, I, w- I want you to see the general principle. A general principle that runs all the way into the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul tells us in verses 11 and 13 that God by the Spirit has portioned out gifts to every single believer. Some of you in this room may not feel very gifted, but I encourage you to trust the Word of God on this. He has gifted you. And some of you have been given multiple gifts, many gifts. These men given many different gifts. 
to be able to exercise. You, you have gifts. And what are those gifts meant to be used for? Well, for the blessing of those around you and for the, the glory of God. This is one of the more remarkable pieces. I mean, again, because, it's, it, because of my role, right? I'm standing before you week after week. You actually, you actually show up at one of the main tasks of my work week. And you, you watch it take place. You're watching it take place right now. Right? This is what he does. This is what he's, he's called to. I don't show up at your workplace and watch you do that, right? This is a little unusual, right? So it's different in that sense. It's very easy then in a text like this to be able to say, oh, well, the people that the Lord is really, really using in life are, are people who are preaching and teaching and prophesying. They're the people who are really doing the work of ministry. Did you know that the very first time that the words filled with the Holy Spirit are used in the Scripture are right now in Exodus 31. It's the first time that someone in the whole of the Scripture is described as being filled with the Holy Spirit and it's not a preacher. It's not a missionary. It's not a prophet. It's a construction worker with good artistic sensibility who's going to spend his day with gold and silver, bronze and stone cutting and woodwork and manage people. He's going to look more like a contractor or a foreman. And he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you see what this means? It means that our callings which are, are given to us from the Lord and the, and the tasks which we put our, literally our hands to during the week are in no way separate from how the Lord is very often and regularly at work in the life of your heart and through you in the lives of others for His glory and the good of His people. It, the, the, the broadness of this gifting and call is meant to inflame our own hearts and to awaken us to the depth of the fact that the Lord is not limited to, a, to, a, to a, just a section of spiritual callings that some people have and other people don't. But that all of the things which you have been gifted to do, some of you like remarkably gifted, like, oh, the other day, I replaced the light on our front porch. If you knew how significant that was, you would stand up in applause right now. I, I literally, like, like, I went to bed that night and I thought, it's amazing. That feels so good. That, that's like unbelievable. Now, I've got two others to do. It could go very poorly. But, but the fact that that happened. Now, some of you could do that in your sleep, right? Like if the directions make sense to you. The wires make sense to you. Like, like everything that's there makes sense to you. It's a gift from the Lord. It's a gift from the Lord. It's a blessing to us. You understand? The, the Lord, through, the, through your hands, can, can encourage and strengthen and build and fix and, and be fruitful. And through the excellence, through the orderliness, through the beauty, through the fruitfulness, through the manner of the way that you carry it out. Through all of these things, the Lord is at, he, he's at work. Do you, do you know, there was, a, there, there was decades ago people we don't know 
whom we should dearly love, built the sanctuary that we're in right now. And it has been a dwelling place for the people of God for decades. Praise God for them. Praise God for them. You don't want Nate doing that. We need the right people doing that. We need the right people commissioned to, to, to carry out that work. I want to encourage you today, do not despise the gifts that the Lord has given to you. But begin to consider how the Lord might be releasing your gifts more than the bottom line. More than something that just pays the bills. But in a way in which you might be fruitful and display His character through both the work that you do itself and the manner in which you carry it out that He might get the glory for it and others might be blessed. Consider what that would be like. I want you to also to see the lesson in this text, to not rely on your gifts. You know, I said earlier that Bezalel and Ohilab likely already had these gifts latent within them. Yet we, we sometimes refer to them, and it's a misnomer, but we say it this way. You know, so-and-so has such a natural talent, as if God had nothing to do with it. Right? That's sort of what we mean. Like, oh, they just had natural talent. Right? You know, all natural talent is from God. You understand that, Right? Like nothing in this world that's been given to you or to me, believer or unbeliever alike, has come from anybody but the Creator. There's no such thing in the way that we sort of almost atheistically think about talent. God is involved in that. God, God is at, at work in that. He, those are His talents that He's, he's given. And, and yet we ought not rely on those gifts. Why do I say that? Because these two men who were already skilled were not released into the work of building the tabernacle until what? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. I think there's a tendency, isn't it, especially as we grow in a particular profession and we get quote-unquote good at it, that we begin to rely upon our gifts, our instincts. We just know how to get it done. And we don't have this learned dependence on the Spirit of God to work. That goes no matter if you're replacing those pipes underneath your sink or you're preaching a sermon. Whatever those gifts are, it can be easy to rely upon them in a way that you forget that they're gifts. That they come from someone. And that someone is the source of making them effective. I'll just tell you just a glimpse into the the weird, weird world of the preacher. But there are, there are weeks where you, you work hard on a message. You, you labor. I mean, the text is hard. Creativity and thought and organization and design is not coming together. It's not beautiful to you. That's me most weeks. And so as I'm looking at it, and, and I'm, like, I'm like bringing my five loaves and two fish to, to the pulpit, and very often, do you know what the Lord does? He makes something out of nothing. He is a kind and generous God. And there is this sense of, in my office, right, hours before, Lord, you've got to do something this morning. I'm going to make a fool of myself. I know it's not me. I know it's not about me. It's about you. I'm having a trouble remembering that. Will you help me serve your people? Will you get the glory today? 
Will this be fruitful and multiply within the body? Would subduing and order and peace and beauty captivate our souls? Would you forge our wills and strengthen us to love your commands and follow you wherever it is that you go? I don't see anything on this page that would help with that. So, oh, Holy Spirit, would you come? He's really faithful. And then there are times, I'm just going to admit to you, there are times where I have written a brilliant sermon. It is unbelievable how amazing it is. It should be published, should be read by seminarians. And it's terrible, right? It just falls flat. It doesn't seem to get beyond the surface level of anybody's heart. I'm sitting in the back going, please tell me it's awesome. Mm. How heartbreaking is that, isn't it? Don't rely on our gifts. Don't rely on our abilities. We need the Holy Spirit, no matter what it is that the Lord has called us to do, to fill us and to form us. We will never be effective in the way that the Lord has called us to be effective without the filling of the Holy Spirit. Unless the Lord builds this house, we labor in vain. We labor in vain. And so one of the remarkable things I want you to see in this text is that reality at play is that the Lord gives gifts, and He calls you to work the way that He works. But then He also equips you in those gifts, and He determines to bear much fruit in and through it. Learn the dependence upon the work of the Holy Spirit in the things that He's gifted you to do. And then thirdly, finally, learn to rest in the way that God rests. Did you think it was odd, right, at the end of this, that we have this whole section on Sabbath? Think of this. He's been on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. He's heard the Ten Commandments. He's received those those litany of case laws with their minutia in detail. He has gotten the blueprints of the tabernacle. And now he's been instructed about these two men who are going to be the main architects and and constructors of the tabernacle. And you think to yourself, okay, now we're ready to get to work. And then he says in verse 13, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, keep my Sabbath. Okay? Keep my Sabbath. That's what I want ringing in your ears As you go down Mount Sinai to the people of Israel, I want you to keep my Sabbath. For this is a sign to you throughout your generations that I sanctify you. Now, why is this here? It's not like we haven't heard anything about the Sabbath if we've been making our way through the book of Exodus. Those of you who've actually been through this decade-long series, you remember back in Exodus 16... When manna fell from heaven, it fell on how many days? Six days of the week. And it didn't fall on the seventh day because it was a Sabbath unto the Lord. And so you, you collected two days worth on the sixth day in order that you could rest on the, on the Sabbath. That was before the Lord in the Ten Commandments even gave the commandment to keep the Sabbath day, which is the fourth of the commandments. So there's, there's twice. And then in Exodus 23... We are told that the slaves in the case laws are also to have Sabbaths and that animals 
need to have Sabbaths and that you owners and, and, and authority figures over these persons and animals, you need to give your, your servants and your animals Sabbaths. We've, we've heard this over and over. And we get to Exodus 31 and again he says, keep my Sabbath. This is not new information, you understand. So, so Moses is not like, oh, wow, that's the first time I've heard that. This is fresh. This is new information. This is going to strike the people of Israel as, uh, as different. No, they're going to already have known this. Why do you think that he spoke to him here, keep my Sabbath? Well, if you'll notice that um, verse 13, the very beginning, the, the above all, is, is what we would call in Hebrew a restrictive adverb. There'll be a test on this later. It, it means that of all the things that I've said to you, I want you to remember this most of all. Isn't that interesting? Above all, above everything that you do, keep my, keep my Sabbath. It's a little bit like when the preacher pauses and he says, hey, you may forget everything I say this morning, but remember this one thing. And all of a sudden you go, what is it? That's a little bit of this moment. Keep my Sabbath. It's of first most importance. You think to yourself, of all the many things you've said, this, this, is, this is the first most importance. Look at the explanation clause, verse 13. For this is a sign to you throughout your generations that I sanctify you. That's his explanation. Now, what, what does a sign do? What does, a, what does a sign do? Well, there's lots of different ways we could describe it, but one of the things that it does maybe at the surface level, is it points to something. It tells you, like, go this direction, don't go this direction, you know, stop here for gas. It tells you something, and it communicates something, and it points in some direction. That's, that's a very important aspect of, of, of what a sign does. He says the Sabbath is a sign. Some of you are in the sacraments class that Mr. Johnson is teaching. Almost always in the Scriptures, a covenant is connected with a sign. A sign goes along with it. And in a very real sense, the sign of the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that here has been given to Moses, is the, is the Sabbath day. It attends his covenant. You'll see later, right? If you don't keep the Sabbath day, you break the covenant. You, you break his, his own promises. It's a picture of something. It hits at a very deep level for the Lord. What does it say? What does this sign say to us? What are we meant to derive from it? Well, there's a number of things I want to say to you. I'll distill it to one. He wants you to remember who you are after the redemption that he has won for you out of Egypt. And the way that he reveals that to you is through giving you a Sabbath day. Who were the people of Israel? For hundreds of years, they were slaves in Egypt. People who had no time off. People who worked themselves to the bone by their taskmasters. People who couldn't pause and come to worship and meet with their God. Who were literally drilled into the ground as we see during our reading of the book of Exodus. What was the first thing that God wanted to teach the people of Israel when he brought them out 
of Egypt. He wanted to teach them the kind of God that he was. He was a God who gave, who gave them rest. He's not like the Pharaoh in Egypt. He's not like the taskmasters. He's here to serve his people. He loves his people. He is the one who gives to them Sabbath. To, to, to embody the Sabbath in the Old Testament means that you're embodying the redemption of God. The picture of his salvation. We have a Sabbath because our God has redeemed us. To enter the Sabbath day and to rest is to say, I'm not like I once was. I once was a slave in Egypt, but the Lord brought me out by a righteous right hand. I am free and at rest. Do you know that's really the same thing you say as you come into the presence of the Lord today? I was a slave to sin. Without hope under the taskmaster of the flesh, condemned to death and to hell forever. But he brought me out by my righteous right hand and I am free and at rest. Do You see, we say a very similar thing. This is the work of the gospel. He says, the Sabbath is a picture of that for you. And I want you to remember it because you're about to get to work. I want you to just to conceive of this. The people of Israel really haven't been at work. This is, the, this is the first instruction of work that we gain coming out of, of, of Egypt. Now they're going to be getting to work. And note, you know, they're going to have that old reference point of slavery as the formation point of their work. And can you just imagine? I just want you to, it's better to get in the shoes of Bezalel. I have been commissioned for the greatest construction project since Noah's Ark. And Ohilib is going to be with me in this work. And all able-bodied men. And we've been, we've been following the Lord. And now he has a, he's going to come and dwell with us. And we've been entrusted with this most amazing task. Let's get to work. Let's get all the materials. Let's organize the teams. Let's begin with the designs. Let's get the sewing machines running to build those curtains. This would have been the spirit of the moment, the excitement of what these two men would have experienced. And the Lord says, above all, keep my Sabbath. Now, I can't help but just go here because I think this is such a temptation, isn't it? And because we, we live in North America, it maybe even seems even more so to be the case. Hear the Lord saying in this, as important and as good as your work is. And as redemptive as this particular task is going to be, I've called you to build my temple, my tabernacle. Don't trust in your work. Don't trust in your work. Don't get your identity from what you do. Don't get your self-worth and self-esteem from your accomplishments. Don't, in other words... In the work that I've given you, forget me. Don't forget me. You, you need me more than you need the tabernacle. More than you need the place of worship. You need me. Come and rest with me. Do you know that is really the wisdom, isn't it, of the Lord's day? You know, you, know, you may look back as I asked you to do some inventory earlier on your work week, and you, can you see the anxiety? Can you see the stress? Can you look at the, the bottom line? Can you, the, the notions that it's all, it's all up to me. If this is going to get done, it's up to me. 
And it can be a crushing weight, can it? And then coming into the presence of the Lord, what does he do? He reminds you that it's not all about you. And your work is not all about you. That the effectiveness of your work is actually with regards to him and the power of the filling of the Spirit. How he decides to use your work. That, that, that's going to be, that is completely up to him. He, you come into the presence of the Lord on a Sabbath. Why? To be reminded of his grace. To be reminded that the work that he's done is more important than the work that you're doing. Do you see, that really is the whole story of the Bible, isn't it? Do you remember when the Lord Jesus Christ is described in the New Testament, he's described as one whom the Father and the Spirit together called by name to carry out the work of redeeming you and me. And do you know what that work is? That work is to build, it's to build a house. It's to build a tabernacle. It's to build a temple. That was Jesus' work, wasn't it? Uh, It's described in Ephesians chapter 2 as he is about building the dwelling place of God. You know what it is? It's you you and me. It's this this room right here. This is a picture of what Jesus is up to. He's he's building a house. He's He's building a temple. He was called by name to do it. Do you know how he was equipped? He was equipped by the Spirit. You remember at his baptism when the... The Father speaks from heaven, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And as He comes out of the water, what happens? The Spirit descends on Him like a a dove and then drives Him out into the wilderness and drives Him throughout His life and and ministry until He finishes uh, the work that the Lord has has actually called him, Him to do. To go to the cross. And do you know what He did? Paid the penalty for your sin and mine. Cleansed our record completely of all of the ways that we have failed to work as he's called us to work. And of all the ways that we've rejected his Sabbath and his rest that he's called us into. He's paid for it. He completed it all. And what is he going to do? Well, to prepare for our rest. That's what he's going to do. He's going to prepare a place for us, he says in John 14. And if he's going to prepare a place for us, what's he going to do? He's going to come back to receive us so that we can go with him to be with him Always. This is the spirit of the whole of the scriptures. Is that Christ's work and the work that God is doing is so much more important than the work that we've been called to do. And we forget that day in and day out until we come into the Lord's house and all is made plain. And God is saying here to the people of Israel, listen, I want you to get busy building my house But I want you to be restored week after week in the Sabbath day to remember me and what I've already done. So that as you rest in my finished work, you'll be energized and ready to go build my tabernacle. And we'll do that week after week after week after week. Now, it would be my prayer today that as you take inventory of your own work life and your own rest life, that you would see places where work has become idolatrous. And you may see places where, well, rest has not been of a godly kind. Where the kind of rest you've been looking for has been different than being renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today the Lord is calling us into that and to realize 
that the beauty of our rest comes from the fact that Christ has finished His work. On that cross, He says, it is finished. And in defeating death through the resurrection, He today is at the right hand of the Father in heaven sitting. And then only standing to make intercession for you and me as He prepares a place for us to be with Him forever. To the degree that that registers to our souls will be the degree that we walk according to the call of His work and experience the joy and the peace of His rest. Come back here over and over again. Be restored in these truths over and over again. It will restore you when you have lost your way. It will guide you when you have laid back on your laurels. It will cause you to seize upon your call. It will cause you to rest when you've overworked. This gospel is the place where he says to you and me, above all, keep my Sabbath. Come back here over and over again. For I'm doing a great work in you and through you right here. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would indeed take what we have heard from your word today and work it down deep into our hearts. Lord, would you assist us by the power of the Spirit in this work? In fact, without the Spirit doing that work, this will become forgettable. It won't have a formative impact upon the way in which we'll move into Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday of this next week. Would you come and would you press it in by your grace? And would you give us the hope that in the moments where work is wonderful... That we're looking to you. And the moments when work is drudgery, we're looking to you. Being humbled in one and energized in the other. And that even as we work through the week, we find little Sabbaths. Each time we remember that we're working for you. And that you have done all of the great work already working for us. Lord, would you bless us with these remembrances throughout this week. And strengthen and glorify yourself through us. Cause us in Christ to be fruitful and to multiply. That whatever our hands would find to do, even when they're doing nothing, and they're resting before you, we would rest with all of our might. We would work with all of our might. We would make much of you. Do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup also and said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many. Drink ye all of it in remembrance of me. You know, one of the haunting parts of Exodus 31 is that section of judgment that is given for those who do not keep the Sabbath of the Lord. It's one of the few times actually in the scriptures where the Lord attaches a death penalty to the failure to keep his laws. Anyone who will profane the Sabbath, it says, shall be put to death. That law, of course, is a civil law. 
given for the people of Israel during the theocracy of the Old Testament. It's not a law that continues in terms of its sustaining and judicial impact in our own current time. It does, however, indicate how serious the Lord is about the Sabbath, doesn't it? If I may say so, probably more serious than you and me. That for the Lord, the Sabbath meant something extremely significant. You can see it when you begin to understand the Sabbath, don't you? It's a picture of salvation itself. It's a picture of the fact that He brought us out of slavery and He's given to us freedom before Him. It's a picture of salvation in the Old Testament. To profane it would be to say, I reject your salvation. I reject your rest. I reject your grace. It's why a soul would be cut off from the people of Israel. It was a way of disavowing one's own faith. Do you know we haven't kept the Sabbath faithfully, have we? Even with regards to the fact that that judicial command and the particular strictures of the Old Testament don't continue in the abiding sense upon us today. But, well, death is still part of what is attending the Sabbath. And what I mean by that is that our lack of Sabbath keeping and the lack of Sabbath keeping, whether in heart or in mind or in actuality with our hands and our feet, is a sin that the Lord Jesus Christ paid for on the cross. That ultimately the death penalty was levied even for our failures to not keep the Sabbath. To not remember the grace and salvation that's been given to us. Jesus Christ paid the death penalty for us, you see. He paid the ultimate, ultimate cost for our failures. Not only just to not work in the way that He's called us to work, but not rest in the way that He's called us to rest. And to prove it, He is before you today in a supper. With a body that is torn in two from blood that is spilled. He wants you to know that our sin is not to be taken lightly. Our failure to do what it is that he's called us to do is not something he can sweep under the rug. Someone must pay the penalty, and someone has. Praise be to God. Jesus is his name. And today, through the one who has paid the penalty for all of our lack of Sabbath keeping, guess what you get to do? You get to rest. You get to rest. You don't have to live under the condemnation, do you? You don't have to live in the fear of all of your faithless Sabbath experiences and activities and actions, you can now rest because Jesus is actually your Sabbath. He is the place of your rest. So why not come to Him by faith today and be strengthened for the work ahead? Father in heaven, would you indeed come Minister to us Christ. Take these elements of bread and wine and consecrate them. Set them apart for the holy use of communion with you. Come, Lord, as your people make their way here to your table by the Spirit. Feed us and strengthen us. Give us the rest that is ours in Christ. And then fit us for the work in which you have called us. 
For we work for you, the most benevolent and kind master there is. Come now and feed us and strengthen us here at this wonderful table. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's come to the table of our Lord.